Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And we're actually going to go a couple of places uh, today that uh, are kind of uh, seemingly at first disconnected, but uh, we'll try to bring it all together by the end of the show. And uh, one thing that uh, I read this uh week uh, and we've had a number of shows on the idea of the working of the mind and the brain and how how it functions and of course it's common to uh, uh used to be that they thought that the brain operated because of the flow of liquid in our bodies that that's why the brain worked is that this liquid in our bodies was actually somehow or other making the brain function and uh, it had to do with the circulatory system, etc. But that actually may be a little truer. Uh, I won't go into all the details of how they thought it all worked. But that there may be a little bit more truth to that than most people will realize. I mean, even uh, Moses talked about the seed of the soul being in the blood. Uh, and when the blood stops flowing... Uh, the soul departs, and that also includes the concept of corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments, because when the soul departs, inheritance passes from the fathers to the sons, to the children, and uh, all this is kind of tied together. You have to realize that the physical world we live in is is almost itself a metaphor for the spiritual reality of God's creation. So what is the brain? How does it work? Uh, a new idea came up is that the brain is like a computer. And we've we've made this artificial intelligence in computer calculations and information, uh, data and rules and software and, and all these things. Uh, the algorithms that are operating in a computer and coding and decoding information with uh, symbols and buffering. And supposedly the brain now is said to be working like a computer. That actual model does not pan out with scientific observations about the way the brain works. It doesn't actually fit. Uh, The human intellect uh, is in a state of uh, about 86 billion neurons in our brain. Uh, there's a hundred trillion interconnections at varying strengths, which may also uh, be assumed to carry some sort of data um, because of the different strengths. You, you know, I mean, it's like uh, your negative and uh, your zeros and one, uh, but actually varying strengths may also have an em- emphasis on shading information. Uh, All these connections together, along with over a thousand different kinds of proteins that are found present in uh, this uh, giant collage of neurons and interconnections, composes this physical thing we call the mind, the gray matter of the mind. But a lot of scientists think that there is no data whatsoever stored in the brain and that all the things that we think we are remembering is not really recorded in the brain but perceived by relationships 
two things, and we use physical things in in our personal universe to as markers to identify and reconnect to what we call memory. And there's a lot of reasons that we can go into all kinds of complexities about this, but this really isn't going to be a show about the complexities of uh, uh, and interworkings of the brain, but just that uh, our mind may be a lot more than simply the gray matter and the blood circulating through it and the electrical currents being pulsated through it. And, uh, and a number of scientists uh, have been re-examining, again, the assumptions about how our brain works. Add to that also the idea that there is a collective consciousness, that what, you know, we, we see the evidence of a collective consciousness in mass hysteria, which actually uh, is transmitted not simply to people who see something terrible going on, but people who aren't seeing what's going on and still are affected by the hysteria of others not too distant from them. So there seems to be connections outside the brain to the brain that is connecting the mind of each individual with each other individual. Today we see an election going on in the United States. It's one of the most bizarre elections I have ever seen not just because of who out of 300, 400 million Americans we have as candidates. I mean, we have libertarians who uh, are running for president who say that they believe in forced vaccinations, and yet they call themselves libertarians. Uh, You know, the different viewpoints that you see coming out of the people, and, and the emotional energy in the people. You know, I mean, you can see videos of numerous uh, candidates uh, or candidate supporters from one party running around, stealing signs, throwing signs away, grabbing hats off of people's heads uh, because they are so against the other candidate. They're unreasonably got this uh, obsession that this one candidate is so bad. And they actually always, you know, most people seem to be voting against the candidate that they hate the most rather than for the candidate that they think is really going to change things in America or make things right or make things better in America. And I find it uh, strangely uh, the incoherency of their arguments, the uh, rationale that they follow. Uh, Somebody went to uh, uh, one uh, candidate's uh, event. I won't say names or anything because it really actually can probably apply on both sides uh, to one degree or another and was quoting the opponent that to the particular candidate whose rally they were at and saying so and so says this da 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 and it's actually the opponent that says it and they were always 
agreeing. Oh, well, yeah, I agree with that. Oh, yeah, that's well, that's absolutely the case. But it was actually the absolute antithesis of the candidate they were there to support. And they were agreeing with it because they were told that the candidate had said this, that, or the other thing. And so there seems to be, you know, uh, operate, you know, whole masses of people operating outside of rationale, outside of this, what we think is this computerized brain uh, that downloads information, calculates through algorithms information, and comes to a conclusion. The conclusion seems to be completely outside of the realm of logic or reason or uh, data. They're not interested in information. They're interested in a particular candidate, and they have a proclivity towards that candidate, and they're going to defend that candidate, right or wrong, crazy or not, insane or not, uh, even if they were dead, they would support them <laughs> as president. And uh, there's something else going on, something else connected in their minds to have them pro this individual or that individual. It's not based on reason. It's not based on logic. Uh, divine reason or divine will used to be called right reason. Assuming that if you understood this God of creation that was a giver of life, that your rationale would be reasonable. It would be right reason. And uh, today, everybody is kind of deciding good and evil based on not necessarily information, but feelings. And feelings are often back to that mass hysteria, are manipulated by the feelings of others around us. You know, it's it's like the contagion if you go to a comedy club and somebody's up there. The comedian comes out and everybody is geared up to laugh. They want to laugh at this guy. And he he has a relationship with the audience. When he develops that relationship with the audience, he gets them to laugh, and they all laugh, even sometimes when they didn't quite hear the joke. And it becomes contagious, that laughter, in this this comedy club. Uh, you get people like Don Rickles who comes out, and he's just absolutely insulting people. And everybody is in hysterics. They're laughing away. If somebody else were to come out and say the same thing, they wouldn't think it was so funny. But Don Rickles would get away with it because it, they had a relationship with his kind of humor. And these relationships go sometimes spiritually much deeper than simply somebody at a comedy club. And that's why you get people for a particular candidate who, who says all kinds of crazy things, does all kinds of crazy things, show themselves as not actually prepared or able to um, uh, do the job, and yet they're still for them. They they just turn a blind eye to all the other problems of that particular candidate because something else has gripped their minds. They're 
the computer that's supposed to sit up there between their ears. They're not actually calculating. Uh, some uh, scientists like Anthony Camaro of the U University of Cincinnati, uh, he wrote a book, uh, Radical Embodied Cognitive Science, uh, talks about uh, the, the, this mainstream view that we, like computers, make sense out of the world by performing computations in a mental uh, representation of whatever it is that we are figuring on. Uh, Camaro and others des uh, describe another way of understanding intelligent behavior uh, as a more direct or a form of interaction between the organism and the world around him, you know, the universe around you, your universe, as you see the universe. Um, as an example, when you you somebody hits a fly ball to center field, the, the fielder runs for the fly ball. And theoretically, and I've even used this analogy before myself to try to explain what goes on, is that that, that uh, ball player is calculating the, the trajectory of the ball, which requires, you know, trigonometry and uh, maybe even a little calculus to calculate where that ball is going uh, and and to get himself to intersect that ball and catch it. When you throw a ball, people say, you know, or bat, you know, keep your eye on the ball, you know, and other guys say, when you hold the bat, be the bat. Make the bat an extension of yourself. See the ball connecting with the bat. It doesn't say calculate. Uh, there used to be a guy on, on a baseball team I was on, and uh he and I both were not the best players, uh, and we often sat on the bench. But he could sit there and watch the pitches coming in, and uh, he could tell you before the ball left the hand of the uh, pitcher if it was going to be high, if it was going to be low, if it was going to be on the outside or inside. He knew. He could see that the pitcher was going to put, throw a high ball, and, and he was remarkably accurate. I mean, almost 100% of the time, he could tell where that ball was going from the sidelines. But when he was batting, he didn't seem to have that same <laughs> observation. He was looking at the pitcher from another direction, but he didn't always seem to know where that ball was going to go. And so what is really going on? Because according to Camaro and other scientists, the mind is not actually a computer. It's uh, not actually doing all these calculations. But uh, this linear optical trajectory that uh, the individual is going to uh, create, I mean, he's going to move. The ball's already in motion. He's going to move himself to where he can catch this. Is not the result of calculations, but the result of relationships. Remembered relationships. He practiced. And uh, 
he has a relationship with the ball. Just like when you have a relationship with a bat. The bat is you, and it's an extension of you. You feel you're aware of the bat over your shoulder. You know that it's in your hands. You feel that grip, and you you see the ball, and you develop a relationship between the bat and the ball, and you connect. It's not about calculations. It's not about a computer thing on your head. Uh, it is about relationships. So is this what's happening in politics when we see candidates that some people are just they're just for that candidate? And no matter what they see that candidate do, lie, cheat, steal, murder, they're for that candidate. And they turn a blind eye to any objection because that's not a part that's not how they calculated to the point where they are for this candidate or that candidate but they have developed a relationship with the persona of that candidate not necessarily with the candidate themselves they may not have seen them they may not know them but they have a relationship with the projected persona of that candidate. And that projected persona may be a result of the spirit that dwelleth in that candidate. The socialist candidate is going to draw socialist supporters. Uh, The angry candidate is going to draw angry supporters. Not that socialists aren't angry. Uh, Most of the time, uh, Amongst the socialists, the progressive socialists, I see some of the most angry people, (laughs) some of the most violent. This is why you have so many videos of them stealing the signs of their opponents and grabbing the signs of their opponents and throwing them in the streets and grabbing hats off of the supporters of their opponents is because they are actually, a socialist is an extremely violent person. I mean, basically, they want to take a bite out of their neighbor. They want to force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. And they're trying to elect leaders who will take from their neighbors so that they can have more stuff. That's the spirit that's in them. And they have a relationship with anybody else who has that spirit within them. Whether they talk about socialism or not. It used to be nobody would talk about socialism in America. That was a bad thing. Anything that reeked of socialism was evil because it reeked of communism, and that was our enemy. And the media would, you know, not be for something like that. But yet, during that same period, public education became more and more predominant. At the beginning of last century, most kids were not educated in public schools, and most public schools were heavily funded by private individuals. So, what what is going on here? Is it have anything to do with right reason? Does it have anything to do with a relationship with God? You have to remember that the image of God that we have in our minds has been created by a relationship with people like pastors and books and media, you know, movies, everything. Creates in our minds an impression of who Jesus Christ was. We imagine who Jesus... Do we really know him, or we just know 
the personaed image of him projected by what we've been told and taught. I was just talking to somebody the other day, yesterday, who uh, we were trimming a horse together. And uh, and we were talking about, um, you know, things about God and the Bible and all this stuff. And I quoted several verses directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Now, this guy goes to church. He's read the Bible. Never heard those. He said, I, did Jesus say that? He never even heard it. But it was actually one of the few times where Jesus was giving direct instructions. And yet, he says, I don't think I've ever heard that in any church I've ever been in. Yet the churches are claiming to preach Jesus Christ. Yet they have never heard these statements, directives, stated by Jesus Christ. Because they really, and they're not going to like this, most of you aren't going to like this, don't have a relationship with the real Jesus. They have a relationship with a Jesus, but that relationship is clouded and distorted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, by other people who project who Jesus was, what he was doing, what he was telling us to do, and they distort our view of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have some relationship with Jesus, but you may need to take it to the next level. And it's not a matter of studying alone. Okay. We'll talk more about this. Come back. the mind and how it works and one of the reasons why is God says he wanted to write his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds he wants to write his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds remember what I said at the beginning of the show is that they used to think I mean for centuries they used to think that the brain operated because of the flow of liquid in the body. That somehow that flow of liquid controlled the operation of our thinking. Well, and I said that 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 may be closer to the truth than the idea that our brain is a computer calculating. Uh, it, by itself, it's not enough of an, of an explanation. But now go back to the Bible. In Old Testament and New Testament, it talks about writing our laws upon our hearts, which does what? Pumps the fluid in our body and our minds directly. God wants to write on each individual's heart and mind directly. Writing upon the heart. How do you write upon the heart? Well, not a felt tip, tip pen. You write upon the heart 
and the blood that's flowing to it, blood being the seat of the soul, because there's a connection. There's a relationship between the heart of the individual and the heart of God, between the mind of the individual and the mind of God. There's a relationship that will control the operation of the heart and of the mind. And therefore, the thinking of that individual. They'll just know certain things because God will reveal it to them, not by the flesh and blood, not by the calculation and reading and knowledge uh, or the tree of knowledge, but revealed to them in their heart and in their mind. Now, again, if we go back to the metaphysical reality of the universe, that first everything is spirit and then comes into physical existence, we may have some sort of insight. But you really aren't going to necessarily have that insight if you approach this only intellectually. You must approach it relationally. Relationally. So when that ball goes up in the air and the guy runs to catch the ball, it's because he has a relationship with the ball. He's had a relationship with other balls flying in the air, and now he has a relationship with this ball, and it guides his feet, guides his arm. And you see these spectacular catches where the guy runs and leaps in the air, and he catches that little ball out there because he has a relationship with the ball, not because he was actually doing trigonometry and algebra and calculus and in his mind. Now, that, that, all those things may take place somewhere, and you could explain what he did with those things, but that's not how he got where he needed to get. And it's the same way with salvation. You don't get there because of calculations, not because you figured out the Bible. You read the Bible. You studied the Greek. You studied the Hebrew. Now, we do that all the time here at His Holy Church. We we study law, history, all these things. But that is just so that we can communicate with your mind. Ultimately, what communicates... The, the, again, that's flesh and blood talking to, it, to you, through us. But what we really want to communicate to you is the Spirit of Christ. And we use these words and all these other things. Mostly what all the writing that we do and all the definitions that we show people and, and show you that the word religion 200 years ago meant the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And now religion means what you think about God. Excuse me. Religion... You know, the difference between those two definitions is vast. You know, it's it's greater than the distance between the Republican and, and Democratic parties. They are actually way closer to the same thing. But if religion is your the performance of your duty, then suddenly the religion you belong to is the government because they perform your duty to your fellow man. They take care of the welfare of the needy and the widows and the orphans or between you and your insurance company or whatever you depend on. That is your religion. That's how you perform that duty. 
what you do in church has very little to do with the performance of that duty. Those are ear-tickling institutions that make you feel good, make you feel saved, make you feel secure. But actually is the performance of your duty to your fellow man is done by men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Something Jesus said you were not to do. One of his directives. So anyway, back to this mind thing. You know, I mean, there was just recently a movie, Transcendence, uh, starring Johnny Depp, whose mind was kind of downloaded into the Internet, into this vast network of computers with evidently disastrous results for humanity. And uh, because he had a relationship with his wife who wanted to make things right, this is what he was going to do with his power, is to make things right. And the people who became, uh, you know, their own personalities to some degree was vetted, and they were brought into this, this uh, cyberspace uh, run amok is that they the, these individuals uh, were uh, somehow almost becoming superhuman, and they oh well they actually did I guess become superhuman, but they had to return and be connected to the mainframe in order to maintain this superhuman ability. That if you if you disconnected them, if you interfered with the signal coming from this transcendent Johnny Depp in the computer, then they would lose their power, they would diminish, and they would even die. They had to have that connection to this godlike computer. Well, that's actually the story in the Bible. That God walked with us in the garden. We ate of the tree of life. We were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we disobeyed God, we discovered that we had no authority to make reality reality and we were naked and we denied that and we didn't want to admit it and we fled it and we're still in denial about our own error about the fact that we have consented to a way that is not cast up we have consented to a program that is not of God that is something less than God We don't want to admit it, so we start lots and lots of churches that tell us that we're saved and that we're not naked and that we're okay. And we pay them big bucks to make us feel saved. And they use music and they use words and they use flattery and and, they're very careful with how they do all this. With feigned words, you know, with that word feigned words, that we see in, in Peter. Uh, what what is what is the actual meaning of that word? Does anybody actually know what the meaning of that word is? 
Well, it actually has to do with something you mold, something you shape. With feigned words, uh, they calculate. Uh, it's uh, the actual uh, Greek word that we're talking about is plastos. And uh, it means molded or formed. You know, as if you were to do it with clay or or wax or even stone. And with the very molded words, uh, they they get you. They get you thinking. They promise you liberty, Peter also says. Uh, from what? Liberty from what? Liberty from your responsibility, the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. They promise you that you don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, the modern religion says you don't have to do anything. You just have to think a thought because religion is now what you think about God. So it's not the performance of duty. Jesus talks about it being a performance of duty. You have to be doers of the word, not hearers only. But the modern church says, no, you just have to hear and believe. You don't have to do. And they quote Paul to prove this. Yet Paul is constantly talking about being doers. When he was talking to we and us, he was talking to people that were actually doing. Paul was taking funds from one country to another to provide a daily ministration for the needy of society. This is what Paul was doing. The modern church doesn't do that. They leave that to government. They leave that to the Caesars and Nimrods and Canes of the world. They're just in the business of getting you to think that you're okay, even though you're not doers of the word. You have no daily ministration. As a matter of fact, the only thing you depend upon is the Corbin of the Pharisees, which is why you have been made merchandise and why you have been entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And you've done this by consent, because you said, let's all have one purse. You know, in Proverbs 1, first, first Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon, my son, if sinners entice thee, and that's what we've been, and our parents before us, entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for the soul of other people, the, the the benefits of other people, the blood of other people. Let us learn privately, secretly, for the innocent without cause, so that we, we can actually take from other people for our own benefit. Now call for this consent and that we are not to give comes in the form of an enticement. The greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Because they entice you. Oh, we'll give you this. You know, we'll take care of your parents. We'll take care of the cost of education. I mean, now we have people actually uh, out there campaigning for candidates because they think those candidates will not only pay for their uh, kindergarten and their daycare and their public schools. I mean, both candidates are, are are promising the people free government daycare, which which is never free. Somebody's paying for that. You're just forcing your neighbor. Both both candidates are socialists. 
at heart. They really are. And why? Because this nation has been a socialist nation for over 100 years. Our money is a socialist money. Our educational system is socialist. Our, uh, our, our taking care of the elderly and the widows and the orphans and needy of society is all done by a socialist scheme. Herod had introduced a socialist scheme where everybody would be a part of Herod's new temple that would provide welfare for the people. Either if you were Jewish, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. If you were, you know, more Roman nature in your religion, he also built the temple at Roma. And and I think it was in Assyria. Uh, to take care of people who like those symbols. But both temples were systems of social welfare that collected money from its registered members and redistributed the wealth to the needy of their society, thereby performing their duty to God and their fellow man, but not by love. Not by charity, not by free will offering, not by the Corbin of Moses, but by the Corbin of Herod, the sacrifice of Herod. Your contribution is your sacrifice. And they consented to this because they thought that that was good. It enticed them that they would be set free from the responsibility of having to make these decisions themselves. Herod would make those decisions for them. Now, Herod didn't institute all this by himself, but he he magnified it. I mean, before Herod, the, the, the temple was not that big a deal. But after Herod, he had enough money to golden lay everything. And, of course, people loved that. It looked really pretty. But that was their Social Security trust fund. That was their reserve fund to help take care of the needy. I mean, all the city-states had it. That's what the Golden Calf was all about. Yeah, I shouldn't say all the city-states, but most of the city-states had some sort of central treasury. Jesus talks against having that central treasury. Moses talks against it. says you're supposed to have your money in your pocket. But how do you take care of the needy of society? You know, there's all kinds of uh, anarcho-capitalists, you know, people who think they are anarchists. You know, if an anarchist wants to destroy the government, if he wants to tear down the state, he's not an anarchist. He's an anarchist. Because the mere idea of tearing down the state is an anarchist idea. Anarchist is from the Greek word ruler. They want to rule over their neighbor who wants to have this anarchist system of benefactors who exercise authority. That's what they want. They have every right to want that. And they have every right to create it. And no anarchist wants to destroy it. Anybody who says they want to destroy it is not an anarchist. They are an anarchist. They want to rule over their neighbor. If you really are an anarchist like Christ was, you will be performing your duty to God and your fellow man through a voluntary system of faith, hope, and charity. 
And before this series is done, we're going to show you that that is the only way to freedom. We, we talked about it already in previous programs, talking about Isaiah 58. You can go look up Isaiah 58, because in that one chapter, they tell you how to break the bonds, the yokes that bind you. And what are the yokes that are binding you? What created those? Gifts, gratuities, and benefits your parents wanted and you wanted. This is the same thing that Cain did. It's the same thing that Nimrod did. It's the same thing that the voice of the people did to themselves when they elected Saul. And it's no different when they elected Herod or when they elected Augustus Caesar or when they elected anybody running for a political office where they have executorial powers. They can exercise, you know, what are the three branches of government? Somebody said that uh, 40% of American uh, college students could not name all three branches of government, which includes the uh, uh, judiciary and the legislative and what's the third one? The executive branch. Because he executes. He is an exerciser of authority, one over the other. He is also commander-in-chief of the military, which makes him an emperor. That's what emperor means, commander-in-chief. We don't say emperor, we say commander-in-chief. But if you look up the word imperator... In a Latin dictionary, they will define it as commander-in-chief. <laughs> That's what it is. So anyway, let's let's continue with this, because we have developed a relationship with the Canes, Nimrod, Caesars of the world. And we have developed that relationship by consent. And that consent is either that we applied for the benefits, or we did not provide the benefits of society through faith, hope, and charity. Either way is consent. And we'll show you in maxims of law that because you did not provide for the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, because you became slothful in that duty, you have been made merchandise. You have cursed your children with death. You have consented to the system. If you want to undo that, if you, you, you will not even be heard by God until you reverse that process. Now, the fact is, when we're talking about a process, many of us participate in a process to greater or lesser degrees, those subtle differences of power and strength. I mean, you just stop. When you're driving down the road, you stop and you help somebody out along the road. Uh, somebody you see, you know, maybe they got a flat tire and you have to stop and help change the tire. And you and you don't do it for thanks. You won't take it. No, I won't take any money. You just do it. Now you formed a connection to Christ. You, you, you formed a relationship to Christ. And that would draw you near to Christ. You sacrificed your time, your energy, and gave to somebody else. 
wisely, carefully, cautiously, with love. Handing $10 out the window to a bum on the side of the street, that may not be love. That may not be love at all. You may be doing him harm, allowing him to be lazy and slothful and not get a job and not work, not being fruitful, not multiplying, but leading a sedentary life of begging and depending upon others. You allow, you actually finance his sloth. How in the world did handing him that ten, twenty dollars out the window strengthen him? It did not. It is not the ways of righteousness. It is not the charity of Christ. He wasn't just going out and throwing money out the window. And he even challenged people when they asked him, you know, the Lord help me. Master help me. He says he questioned them. There's a question. Do you believe? When you handed that ten, twenty dollar bill out the window, did you ask the person, Do you believe? Did you really listen to the answer if you did ask that? Is he lying? I mean, the Pharisees said they believed, but Jesus knew they wouldn't. He wouldn't even give them the time of day. But you're going to give 20 bucks to a guy on the corner that you don't even know? You have no idea that he may be using that for drugs or not? He wants that $20 bill so he doesn't have to work. He enjoys conning you. You encourage his sloth. That is not responsible charity. You must have responsible charity. In Proverbs twenty two twenty six it says, Be not thou one of them that strike hands, or of them that are sureties for debt. Everybody in Australia, United States, what have you, are surety for debt. How are they surety for debt? Because they struck hands, they apply, they signed something. They applied for something. And that is that is what binds them. They have also accepted something. Who hasn't gone to public school? I mean, we've we've been doing this for a century. Taking and using uh, one another to obtain benefits at the expense of each other. And we need to repent of that. We need to turn around. We need to go another way. And, and that other way will set us free. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. 
For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we're talking about relationships of the mind and of the body and uh, of the heart and how they control our thinking, how they manipulate uh, what we believe to be true, uh, how they determine our loyalties, uh, how they bind us and yoke us to certain ways of thinking. Because that's what's happening in the world today. People think, oh, you know, they, like they discover that they're in a bondage worse than that of Egypt. In Egypt, 20% of everything you earned, your labor, had to go to the government. That was the bondage. You weren't slaves. They weren't, they weren't uh, you know, everybody pulling on this rope and uh, some big fat guy beating you like we see in the movies. But you were in bondage. You a portion of your labor didn't belong to you, and through Crafts of State, they expanded this. I mean, it was 20% had to go to the government, no matter what. Uh, today, you know, in the United States, what is it, 14-some percent is your payment to Social Security. Supposedly your employer pays half of that, but the reality is you pay all of it because your employer figures that he would have had that money there he could have given to you, but instead he gives half of that to the government, and, and you give half to the government, and so it's really you giving all of that because it's based on the value of your labor. Then there's an income tax on top of that, and then, of course, there's property tax, sales tax, gasoline tax, and then, of course, everything you buy costs more because everybody's taxed. There, there's a study, actually, uh, that's come out uh, – I can't remember exactly what the theory, uh, how they calculated it, but they used to calculate that once you got up to about 70% of the money that you make being taxed, that it was it would destroy the economy. But there's a new study that you know has been changing that number number from 70 down to 60, down to 50, down to 45%, and actually the newest study. Uh, that is actually by one of Obama's uh, favorite economists, uh, is that if it's 33% of the money being taxed from the people, that the economy will be destroyed. Incentive will go, uh, and this is what was the decline of Rome, the incentive to make a profit would go, the sloth and avarice of the people would be encouraged. The covetousness of the people for benefits at the expense of their neighbor would be totally licensed and excused, and it would destroy the virtue, the social virtues of society, and destroy society itself. 
This is the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The decline and fall of every empire, Babylon, Egypt, whatever, comes about because of this rise in taxes. This is why in Israel there was 10% tax was to automatically go to a Levite. And we call that a tithe. It didn't actually go to the Levite or be collected from the Levite by force. It was freely given. It was free will offerings. To the Levite of your choice, if he wasn't doing a good job, you didn't give to him. You had to give to somebody in order to stay in good standing, but there was no actual requirement to pay that where you could be compelled to pay it. No Levites were kicking in your door because you didn't give a tithe. You were just expected to do it. And and you knew common sense would tell you that if you don't pay in something, there will be no government and it will all be chaos. This is a way in which you paid in. Now, Israel was defended by a militia of the people that were already organized into platoons and brigades and companies of soldiers. And how they did this was ten families got together and they picked a minister. Those ten families were a free assembly, a congregation. Their eldest sons would be a part of the militia. Actually, the militia in the United States, by statute, includes every able-bodied man between the ages of 17 and 45. It doesn't say, you know, uh, it's the uh, National Guard or anything. The militia is just automatically every able-bodied man between the ages of 17 and 45. And so if you had a family... A congregation of 10 families, every son between the ages of 17 and 45 at least would be considered part of the militia. And of course, there could be some 50 year olds in there and 60 year olds too. But that would be the militia. They couldn't be drafted, they were already a part of the militia simply because they were between those ages and they were able bodied. But what bound them together as a platoon? Because it's multiple families. What what brings them together as a fighting unit that we would call a platoon in the army? It wasn't because some sergeant or some colonel came along and said, you guys are all going to be in this platoon. They're already in the platoon by the natural order of their society. What was that? Ten families got together and tithed to a Levite minister who was responsible for the service of the tabernacles of the congregation. Whenever you see that phrase, tabernacles of the congregation, they're actually saying the tents of the congregation. He was responsible for the service. What service? Public service. The duty to God and your fellow man. He's responsible for that. And if he, and he knows he's responsible for that. If somebody falls off a ladder in his congregation, he knows about it. Now, his congregation is the congregation he serves. The congregation he's in is actually nine other ministers like himself who are serving ten families, who are tithing to him. 
Now, there's other requirements, and we can go into that at another time, but this basic idea makes those ten families a platoon. And the sons of those ten families are going to work together. Now, some of them might be related. That's cousins or second cousins or just neighbors because geographically they're going to be in the same area. So they're going to know each other. They may have worked with each other. They may have played with each other as kids. Uh, Maybe some of them are married to each other's sister. Who knows? All kinds of other, what? Relationships are developed when you gather in this ten-family congregation. Another way those relationships are created in these free assemblies. You go to our site, Preparing You, look up some of these words. We have articles that talk about them. We have diagrams that show how this works. But relationships are created because when your dad needed help, the congregation was there. When you didn't have enough money and you know you had an injury or or whatever, somebody was there. If you had a medical problem, people came and said, you know, what worked for me when I had this is I did this. And you get firsthand testimony. With no no guarantee of profit. Just the hope that you'll be there for them. This is what faith, hope, and charity is all about, which is the essence of the perfect law of liberty. And we're supposed to be attending to law, justice, mercy, and faith. Mercy is is about charity. It's about grace. You know, faith is about allegiance to an idea, a concept. And the idea of Christ was an anarchist idea. No ruler to exercise authority one over the other. You did it by free will offerings. Moses did the same thing. Free will offerings. So people were just automatically giving on a regular basis. With no strings attached. Not, it's not like an insurance program where you pay in and now I can look up my policy and see what I get back if I have an injury. You're actually casting your bread upon the waters. That forms a relationship with God. That relationship allows God to write upon your heart and upon your mind. Things like, don't go there. Drill here. Walk this way. He will tell you those things because he sees all. He knows all. He will tell you and inspire you to do this, that, or the other thing in his time. And because you have a relationship with him. If you are selfish, if you are slothful, God is not slothful. If you are covetous of your neighbor's goods, You break that relationship with God. And he cannot write on your heart. He cannot write on your mind. And you will not know him. And you will not be his people. And you will be brought and entangled again in the elements of the world. And to the bondage and yokes of the world. Now, if you want to break those yokes, again, go back to Isaiah 58, go back to what Jesus said, and repent, start thinking in 
start thinking and acting another way. Start walking another way. See, you, your parents have consented, you have consented, now you have to turn around and walk another way that is cast up. Because you've been going away that's not cast up, that actually brings you down. And so, you know, if you go back and you, and you read uh, uh, things like uh, Proverbs 1, you know, and the fact that it's Proverbs 1, it's not just an accident that it's Proverbs 1. It's it's because it's fundamental. It's foundational. It's the way things work. The greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And the reason they give you those gifts, gratuities, and benefits is to entice you to consent. The law of nature is unchangeable. It is it is just always the same. It doesn't alter. God is the same yesterday as he is today. And the laws of nature are unchangeable. A contract is a law between the parties, which can acquire force only by consent. And that consent makes the law. Consensus fatiat legem. It's very interesting in Latin. There are two different words for it that we see translated into the single English word law. One is lex legis, or legem, uh, in the objective case. And the other is jus juris, what is just, right, and fair. Legem is not necessarily just, right, and fair. It is, it is law, just, right, and fair, but it is established by consent, by contract. Contract makes the law. Consent makes the law. Now, a lot of people say, oh, but a contract has to have all these elements and I have to understand the terms and all these kind of things. Not necessarily. I mean, that's nice wishful thinking, but it doesn't work that way. Those consenting and those perpetrating are embraced in the same punishment. So... You know, even though, and that's very important, embraced in the same punishment, because we've got the mark of the beast, we have the prophets of the beast. That's the ones perpetrating. But then we also have those consenting. Now you say, well, I didn't consent. But didn't you? So let's, let's look at consent a little bit more. Consent makes the law. A contract is a law between the parties which can acquire force only by consent. And uh, this consent that makes the law, the term of a contract lawful in its purpose, constitutes the law as between the parties. But it also says in these maxims of law, quitashit consentere vidiatur. He who is silent appears to consent. If you do not have a daily ministration that takes care of the needy of even a tiny society, it is assumed, since that is the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man, that you consent to whatever system of daily ministration is available. I pointed out time and time again, the Amish are exempt from Obamacare. 
Now, why is that? Because they had all kinds of uh, uh, these uh, lobbyists down there in Washington lobbying for the Amish? <laughs> no, because they're already taking care of one another. They haven't been silent in their duty to their fellow man, at least to their fellow Amish man. They've been taking care of each other for a long time. And so they didn't even bother them. They just, those guys are, can, you know, exempt. And even the people who are part of the Good Samaritan uh, uh, share, health share programs. They're health share. They're not really insurance. They're just health share. And they are not like the kingdom of God. They are not like ancient Israel, like the early church. Because the early church, you know, they have some follow-up, but they're not based on the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which we see all throughout the early church for the first thousand years. You wouldn't know that because you've been listening to the church that rose up a thousand years ago, a thousand years after the fall of Jerusalem, uh, when Caiaphas saw Jesus coming in the clouds, as Jesus said he would, after that, for a thousand years, there were hardly any kings who could exercise authority one over the other for most of the people who lived in Europe. Most of those people who lived in Europe lived at peace in valley after valley after valley. And when somebody rose up, they came together and stopped it. Somebody tried to usurp authority that was not theirs, seize authority. That's what usurpation means. That was not theirs. Neighbor came with neighbor and stopped it, said, no, you cannot do this. Because people were tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith, like Jesus said. Now they don't do that. Now that's the government's job to do that. We don't actually go anywhere. Even at the beginning of World War I, World War II, People actually, Americans actually got up and bought their own ticket and went over to places like Spain and stuff and fought for who? The anarchists. Because the anarchists were actually building libraries, roads, hospitals, schools. Anarchists. They weren't tearing down, they were building. Because they built by free will offerings, by charity, not by force. You don't do that. You're slothful. You're silent. I don't even hear from you. The only time we hear from somebody is when they need something. You know, we need we need a bill paid. We need help. We don't hear 10% of whatever they're making. We don't hear that. that, that, that nobody's casting their bread upon the water. Oh, a little bit here and there. You know, we get a few crumbs now and then. But and that's okay with us if that's what you want to do. But don't expect to develop a real relationship with God and your fellow man that will show you where to walk or where to drill or where to build or where to work. You won't be told that because you're not giving. You're not sharing. You're not casting your bread upon the water. So you don't you don't have the character of Christ. You don't come to serve. You go to church for what you can get out of it. You 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 we have community calls. 
you go on the community calls for what you could bring, that you could be of service, or do you go on the community calls for what – I don't get anything out of the call, so I, I don't ever go on there. Eh, there's nothing there for me. And that's why I go places. It's what I can get out of the deal, right? No. That isn't Christ-like. You have no relationship with Christ. You're missing the ball. You're not going to be there. Because you're silent. You're not coming like Christ came to serve. He who may consent tacitly by that silence or, you know, by just kind of going along to get along, may consent expressly. It may be assumed that he's consenting expressly because he didn't say anything. And this consent removes or obviates, you know, any mistake. So you you may... Uh, become a part of this system by mistake. But if you continue in it, and you continue to be silent and not create another daily ministration operating by faith, hope, and charity, you say, well, I'm just not a part of the system. You know, I don't want any of their benefits, and so therefore I'm free. If you do not have a daily ministration, you are silent in the ways of God. If you don't have a daily ministration that that takes care of the needy of society by faith, open charity, where you're casting daily your bread upon the waters to help others out. If you only help those that you stumble upon, if you only help those that you know, what grace have you? That is not what Christ... Christ didn't come just to help those that he may know or have a personal relationship. He came that everyone might be saved. But in order to be saved, you have to repent. You have to turn around and start thinking like Christ. You have to come in the name of Christ. At this stage, you have consented to Nimrod. Your parents have consented to Nimrod's ways of Babylon, who was a mighty provider instead of God. He was going to set things right, just like Saul was going to set things right. But your parents have accepted those benefits, and no one is obliged to accept a benefit against his consent. You were sent to public school. Your parents collected Social Security, or your grandparents. And this binds you. You become a surety for that debt, because that was your responsibility to honor your father and your mother. It was their responsibility to educate you, not make their neighbor pay for your education. But if he does not dissent, if you do not dissent, you will be considered as assenting. So if you aren't creating a way to educate your children at home and help other people educate their children at home, you're assenting to the system. It is immaterial whether a man gives his assent by word or by acts or by deeds or by the lack of the deeds, the silence. You are considered to you are considered to having assented because you haven't given you haven't created the alternative the alternative which is a system based on faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty. 
If you don't create the alternative, you should not be at liberty. You are slothful, and you should be under tribute. If I had a magic wand to free you, I wouldn't do it. If I had $20 to give you out my car window, I wouldn't do it. Because I'm not going to be setting you free. I'm going to make you more comfortable in your foolishness. He who receives the benefits should also bear the disadvantage. You ha- you went to public school. You should you should be paying for public school for everybody else. Even if you go and homeschool, you should still be paying for public school. But if you went and homeschooled your own children, that would be a good start. But then if you also helped other families homeschool, that would be even a better start. And you would be developing a relationship with the character of God, with the mind of Christ. And every dollar you spend, every hour you spend helping others home educate their children would be adding that fluid circulation to your heart and therefore to your mind and therefore God will write upon your heart and your mind in accordance with what you do to others. As you judge, so shall ye be judged. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about you deciding to come in the name of Christ, deciding to gather together to serve. You do not gather in a congregation for what you can get out of it. You gather in a congregation for what you can put into it. If you're coming in the name of Christ. Now, if you want, don't want to come in the name of Christ, then you go to church for what you can get out of it. What it makes you feel like. But that's not coming in the name of Christ. That's coming in the name of Nimrod. You, you belong to the church of Nimrod. And you should fall as Nimrod fell. These, this, it's really very simple. Now, know this: a man may relinquish of himself and his heirs a right which was introduced for his own benefit. In other words, the people are always saying, "Well, I didn't make any agreements." It doesn't matter. The people at the time of Moses didn't have to make any agreements. Their parents made an agreement. You you cannot inherit from your father what your father has already given away. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. If a generation gives away its liberty, then you yourself are born into bondage. Remember, the laws of nature cannot change. And this is part of the laws of nature. You cannot inherit what your father has already given away. Or sold. If your father becomes a surety, technically you should be a surety. A man may relinquish for himself and his heirs. And that's what your parents have done. But comes a time when the proverb will be heard no more in the land that my father has eaten sour grapes and turned my teeth on edge. So there is a way out. 
but not without repentance, not without thinking another way. And that's what repentance is. You have to think another way. And that's what we're, we're talking about. And that's why you need to form congregations of righteousness. product of you alone. It includes all those people around you, all the things you've been told, um, ideas that have you have developed a relationship with. We are affected by what we do. Our thinking is affected by what we do. We're affected by our friends, our relationships with other people. Are we gathering together with people who are actually seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you were actually seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you would be creating a daily ministration, just like the early church, that took care of the needs of the people so that nobody, nobody was ever cornered or forced to have to go to the benefactors who exercise authority one over the other where their welfare is a snare. Now, I'm quoting Paul and David and Proverbs, showing you how this works. You're either seeking the kingdom of God with real energy, real effort, real diligence, or you're sitting around thinking you're saved because you say something, but you don't actually do it. Jesus said, not those who say, but those who actually do it the will of my Father. You have to forgive. You have to give if you expect God to give to you. Over and over again, we show in articles like um, Go and Cry or Cry Out, that you would not be heard. You're, if you if you check a, pick a ruler who can exercise authority one over the other, you will not be heard when the calamity comes upon you. That's what the Bible says. You will not be heard. You think God loves you and that he will take care of you? Lots of luck with that. Now, he does love you, and he's trying to take care of you, but unless you forgive, neither will you be forgiven. Well, how... And you paid into a bankrupt system and you want money back. How will you be given money back? It's bankrupt. It's gone. You said, well, I had to pay in. Other people have to pay for me. Where's forgiveness in that? No. You have to think differently. I, I don't know how to instill upon you how important that is. Because that is repentance. Repentance is thinking a different way. You have to recognize that 
through your covetousness and the covetousness of your parents, you have been made merchandise. You have cursed your children. Denying that, denying the reality of that, doesn't change it. Now, I equated this whole idea. Somebody thought I was defending the idea of social contracting. It exists. And it exists by consent because they nobody was building the alternative. Everybody was allowing the, their duty to be fulfilled, their duty to their fellow man to be fulfilled by the government. Because they were not creating a daily administration. They were silent in the ways of Christ. They were slothful in the ways of Christ. And that makes them consenting. Just, just the Amish give you the perfect example. Like I said, they were taking care of one another, and they were automatically made exempt. If all the other Christians were taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, which the early church did, they too would be exempt, except for the fact that they're not doing that gives us evidence that they are not really Christians. They are not bearing fruit. They are bearing the fruit of bondage, not the fruit of Christ. So the kingdom and their rights and their families are all being taken away from them. And they they will not change unless they repent and think a different way. You have to think a different way and you have to act upon that thinking. There is no other way to do it. People say, you know, they always talk about the state. You know what the definition of the state is? Let's let's look at the first definition of the state. A particular condition that someone or something is in at a specific time. In the state of nature, you were the state. But in the state of contract, in the state of application, in the state of silent consent, the state becomes a body. A body of men who rule one over the other. A nation or territory considered as an organized political community under one government. The church is one government. It's just one government that does not exercise authority one over the other. Now, I don't know what your church does, but any church that was established by Christ, would have a daily ministration to feed his sheep, to take care of one another, to love one another. And that that form of government would be dependent not upon men who exercise authority one over the other, like archists do, but they would be anarchists, titular leaders, who create that daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty. This would be one form of government. And people who look to that form of government would no longer be silent in their consent to the ways of the world, but would be putting their faith like a light upon a stand, showing like the Amish. You know, we should all be like the Amish without suspenders, without straw hats, without black coats. 
we should be taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And if we were, we would be exempt from Obamacare. We would be exempt from a lot of other things. But we have to have the social virtue to care about one another as much as we care about ourselves. And we have to care about the stranger in our midst. And as long as our ministers have to both earn the money, purchase the materials, do the work, it's not going to happen. The people have to give. And you have to give because you form a relationship with God. Because Christ came to give. He didn't come to take. He came to give. If you're going to come in the name of Christ and develop that relationship with Christ, you too have to come to give. You give locally to ministers you trust, and you you rebuke them if you don't think they're doing a good job. And those ministers need to come together with other ministers and share with those ministers and their congregations. Even That's even more important than taking care of their own. Yes. It is more important than taking care of their own congregation. So 51% of everything they receive should go out. Just That 1% is just to make sure that they're giving at least 50. Should go out to other congregations and other needs. Either up or laterally in the network. Because that's the way Christ came. He came to give to others, to share with others. To save others, that they might be saved. He didn't come to save himself. He didn't come just to save it. He even told all his apostles, you're going to get persecuted. I'm not saving you. People used to always ask me when I wrote the book, Covenants of the Gods, does this stuff work? And they always thought somehow or other I was telling them how to get out of the system. That's not what the book says. As a matter of fact, it tells you right in the beginning that's not what it's about. It's just telling you how the system works. You want to get out of the system, only God can do that. What this does is put you down on the shores of the Red Sea. Without the benefits of Pharaoh, but it doesn't matter because you're taking care of one another. Pharaoh will hate that. He will be jealous of that. He will be envious. He is a jealous God, and he will come after get you. But then God will hear your cries and God will put a pillar of fire between you and him. Are you sure he will put it between you and them? (laughs) That's where faith comes in. You have to love the idea of sacrificing yourself for others in order to get God's ear. Go and cry. Ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen by your own election, chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you. 1 Samuel 8.18 When Saul foolishly forced the sacrifice of the people, his kingdom was doomed. That, if, you, if you want to look that up, what, what I'm talking about. First Samuel thirteen thirteen. Maybe that's why thirteen is an unlucky number. Uh, that Samuel said to Saul, "Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, 
which he commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. What did he do? He forced a sacrifice. Go read the you know, first Samuel thirteen. He forced a sacrifice. And that's that's where you are at. You're forcing the sacrifice of your neighbor. And so God's not going to hear you. Go and cry unto the gods which uh, ye have chosen, the ruling judges, the archist judges that you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulations. Judges 10, 14. He's telling you over and over again that this is this is what you need to be doing. This is what you that you're not going to be heard. That this has always been the case. That you're not going to be heard. You know, Judges ten fourteen. I just read Deuteronomy one forty three. So I spake unto you, and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandments of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. Deuteronomy 3.26, But the Lord was wroth with me for your sake, and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. But it goes on to say in Deuteronomy 30.17, But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. What do you think is going to happen? Well, same thing as he says in First Samuel eight eighteen, and ye shall cry out in that day, and because of your king, because of your presidents, because of your prime ministers, and that's what people are crying out, and they're all voting for somebody else. You know, because they're crying out, this guy is so bad, i got to vote for this guy. But where's the vote for Christ? Where's the voice of the people for Christ? Well, I don't believe you believe in Christ if you don't believe in feeding the sheep and taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. I don't believe that the kingdom of heaven is within you if I do not see the fruit of it budding forth from you and caring for one another. If the only time I hear from you is when you want, there's a problem. And I should not hear you any more than God should not hear you. If you only gather when it benefits you, you do not gather in the name of Christ. Jeremiah eleven fourteen. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their troubles. So why should you hear them? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It is iniquity to covet your neighbor's goods. It is iniquity not to provide for the needs of your neighbor in a righteous way that strengthens the poor. If you do not, again, have that daily administration, 
then why do you tell me you are not a worker of iniquity? You know, this whole workers of iniquity. Go back to Psalms 5.2. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. In, in verse 5, he goes on to say, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Socialism is the workers of iniquity. It's the workers of covetousness. And you've lived in socialist nations for a hundred years, for a century. And you, instead of being more philanthropic, more charitable, you are less. You know, it's like uh, everybody gives at Thanksgiving and Christmas. There's 363 other days of the year. How are you giving then? Does the heart not pump every minute of every day? One minute of any day your heart does not pump, you are dead forever. People give to the church and then they they have a need and they want back. But did they go to their family first? Did they ask their family first? Their congregation is diminishing to almost nobody because everybody wants to come when it benefits them. Why not join with another congregation until you have at least ten families? And then give every week into that congregation. You will have an abundance. You will have more than an abundance. But most important, you will have enough. Because you don't need great riches. You just need to have enough. And you need to stop wasting your time and start doing it for real now. There's no time to waste. We need to look at things differently than we have been. In Second Peter 2.10 it says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. The word there, government, is actually the word dominion. Despise dominion. Dominion is what what you're supposed to have. God gave you dominion. That people would rather have benefits rather than dominion. Because dominion includes a responsibility to dress it and keep it. It requires you to get up every morning and work and apply yourself. It's a job. God gave us a job. What's the first commandment of God? Dress it and keep it. That's a job. You need to walk in the desert here. You need to water the fields. You need to care for the the everything. If you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And if you're not doing it, then you're not dressing and keeping it. You're not keeping the first commandment of God. Presumptuous are they, it says. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. You know, somebody, somebody, well, I, I see this all the time. You know, people, it is natural for a man to have a family. 
The family is demanding. It requires a lot of attention, a lot of work, raising, your, especially if you're home teaching your children, you're providing all the medical care and all their health care yourself. Um, you know, we we depend on no insurance. We depend upon no government subsidies. We depend upon none of those things. We have to provide everything ourselves. We hope that other people will help us out if there is a need. But we have no guarantee of it. But really what we want to see more than them helping us out is helping each other out. That's what we're talking about is helping each other out. In Jeremiah eleven twelve it says, Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense. That's who they give to. But they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. This is what's coming upon us. Matter of fact, the gods which you have been serving all these years, they are actually probably going to be instrumental in bringing about your tribulation. They are going to be instrumental in bringing you down to destruction. This is this is the way it has worked always in the past. You know, you go back to Pharaoh's bondage in Egypt, you know, in Genesis forty seven twenty four, and it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give a fifth part unto the Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own for seed and field and for your food and for them of your households and for food for your little ones. That is the bondage of Egypt. The liberty of God is that you give that 10% out to a government freely. Now, in order for the people who were in bondage to turn around, they had to forgo their straw, their benefits, and still pay their tally of bricks. In order to reverse that process, they couldn't just, well, now we're going to start, we're not going to pay our tax anymore, and we're going to start taking care of one another by faith, open charity. No, they had to still pay their taxes to Pharaoh, but they had to start taking care of one another in order to reverse that process. Exodus one fourteen. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the fields, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives, let us find grace in thy sight of my Lord, and we will be the Pharaoh's servants. And the Pharaoh took them at their word. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt until the day that the Pharaoh should have a fifth part except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. But when they went out of Egypt, they still had to give that fifth part. But they had the freedom of choice as to who to give it to. The sovereignty of the nation was back in the hands of the people. But they could only keep it if they were not slothful. They had to be responsible. They had to build 
a society based on free will giving and free assemblies in order to reobtain that liberty and maintain that liberty and that entrance to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is where you are ruled by God and not by others. And that's where we need to go. And we're going we're going to talk in the future about this whole idea of gifts and how these gifts, gratuities and benefits at the expense of your neighbor is really at your own expense. In that proverbs uh if you if you go on and read it and uh and maybe we can get through some of it here it says uh in Proverbs 1 the Proverbs of Solomon the son of David king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction to perceive the words of understanding to receive the instruction of wisdom justice and judgment and equity to give uh subtly to the simple to the young man knowledge and discretion a wise man will hear and will increase learning and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel to understand the proverb and the interpretation of the words of the wise in their dark sayings. That's the way he begins. You get into the 10, talks about that one verse. Go read Proverbs 1 from the beginning. You'll see. You go read it on our site. See what we're talking about. Until then, God bless you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.